This is Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And this is Homebrew Murder Crew. Welcome back for another wild episode, you guys. And I swear to God, if you guys get any sleep tonight after this, <laughs> it, I will be amazed. Are so, you going to have nightmares? Let me know tomorrow. Oh, I love scary I just, stories. I don't know if you're going to have nightmares. It's just like all the research and like the planning of this and the writing and editing of the episode like I said it earlier it like caused me a brain bleed or something but like it's just a lot it's very unsettling a lot of information yeah, yeah. it's a lot of information it's very unsettling um so right off the hop I'm gonna give a big old trigger warning so there is murder there is rape there is sodomy there is a lot of that stuff um also as part of the episode um i'm gonna be including like quotes from our killer so today's episode is carl panzram and he is a maniacal crazy insane brutal serial killer from the 1900s well, you two have been hyping this up for like a little bit now, and I have been dying to hear about this guy because he's actually one I haven't heard of. So, and with you guys getting all excited, I'm, I can't wait. I'm tuned in. I'm ready. Yeah, this is going to be, this is also going to be a big one. So we're going to warn you now, it's going to be a two-parter. Yes. The plan is to release these a day after the next a day apart? A day yeah, apart, a day. yeah. Um, so we're not going to hold off a week for you guys to hear the second part, but we're definitely going to break it down into two parts because it is just a lot. And with that, because of the difficulties I had going through this case and everything, uh, for you guys, our listeners as well, please take care of yourself. If you need a break, if you need to pause, if you need to make this episode three parts for you <laughs> please do that because it is a lot so um are you guys ready for me to tell you the tale of one carl panzerum oh i'm, oh, ready. I'm so <laughs> ready for this i'm so excited <laughs> so you guys i'm going to start it off with a quote from carl panzerum himself and um this is going to give you a little foreshadowing insight about who we're dealing with here okay, okay. so quote if you or anyone else will take the trouble and have the intelligence or patience to follow and examine every one of my crimes and actions, you will find that I have consistently followed one idea through all my life. I preyed upon the weak, the harmless, and the unsuspecting. Those I harmed were weaklings, either mentally or physically. Those who were strong, either in mind or body, I first lied to and led into a trap where they were either asleep or drunk or helpless in some way. I always had all the best of it because I knew ahead of time just what to expect and the others did not. I therefore was strong in my knowledge and stronger in body than those I preyed upon. This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. End quote. So Carl Panzram was born June 28, 1891 as Charles Panzram 
in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. He was the son of Prussian immigrants Johan or John and Matilda Panzram and raised on his family farm there in Minnesota. Uh, his parents had initially immigrated here with the hopes of uh, living the American dream, uh, making money off, off of fertile land. But unfortunately, most of the fertile land had already been spoken for. And so they were left with really little. So basically, they ended up with a dirt farm that couldn't pr produce much of anything. Either way, though, his parents were still hardworking, although they were dirt poor. Dirt farm. They were also stern, as most immigrants were in the area. Uh, Carl had five brothers and one sister, and they were all honest and dedicated farmers, though the same traits were not passed down to him. So basically, by the time these kids were old enough to walk and speak, they were basically put to work on the farm so because like, they needed all the manpower they could just to like squeeze a penny out of that dirt. When Carl reached seven years old, his parents ended their marriage, but for people of their economic level at the, at the time, there was no divorce, no courts, no alimony. So his father simply just up and left the farm one day and didn't return. As a result, the family faced a bleak future. They would work on the farm nonstop from sunup to sundown with very little to show for their labor. Carl would be sent to school for a full day and then upon his return would have to work on the farm well into the early morning hours, often only receiving a few hours of sleep at night. So these are during his early years too, like his formative years, and he's only getting like two to three hours of sleep at night because he's going to school and then he's busting his ass on this farm so that's rough couldn't imagine yeah no so during these early years carl was often beaten by his brothers for any reason regardless of how insignificant and at the age of nine panzram developed what he referred to in his writings uh, basically his autobiography he's basically got um and i'll link it in the show notes but um <clears throat> they're called the panzram papers we get into it uh, near the end of episode two or sorry part two but um, it's basically um, his autobiography that he's written. Ooh, I'm going to miss that part. Yeah, I'll <laughs> just listen back. I'll listen back. Um, so he referred to this issue as a mastoid issue, basically like in layman's terms, it's like an ear infection. So the mastoid is a portion of the temporal bone of the skull that's located behind the ear. And given his family's limited financial resources, the operation was performed on the family dining room table. <laughs> without proper sanitation or anesthetic oh fun yeah so this surgery surgery led to an infection and also when carl's dad was operating on the ear he kind of like <laughs> slipped oh. and it just this is making the inside of my yeah. ears hurt <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, because of the infection, it was so severe that Carl had to be taken to the hospital and have a second operation. This infection very well could have spread to the brain, uh, harming the delicate tissue. Specifically, the infection could have caused damage to the hypothalamus, which is the area of the brain responsible for anger, fear, and aggression. In his later writings, Panzram would wonder if this early physical trauma could have led to the overwhelming aggression that he would exhibit going forward. Carl began to notice that there were people in this world who had a heck of a lot and lived extremely easy lives. And coming from a family that had next to nothing, busting their ass day in and day out, um, this led to quite a bit of jealousy. 
so it really made Carl mad because his life was difficult and he had nothing. So he decided he'd run away west to be a cowboy. He often had dreams of being a cowboy or a pirate. Oh. <laughs> These were his dreams oh, and ambitions. Wow. Yeah, a cowboy <laughs> or a pirate. But not before he broke into a neighbor's home when he was 11, stealing anything he could get his hands on, including a gun, but not limited to a cake and some apples. Oh. He was later caught walking down the street. He was eating the cake and, and he was caught and um, for, for the crime, basically. And he was brought home where he received a, a beating, you know. Um, Carl was later arrested for that crime as well. So in 1903, at 12 years old, Carl was sent to a boys' school after his burglary ordeal. And his charming behavior continued there. Uh, boys' school was located in a town of Red Wing on the Mississippi River, south of St. Paul. The Minnesota State Training School contained about 300 boys who were ages varied from 10 to 20. The school population was basically at the mercy of the jailers who were under little or no outside supervision, which uh, that condition promoted um, at least or at least allowed a level of abuse that can't be imagined today. The admissions log dated October 11th, 1903, lists Panzram's crime as incorrigibility. And that basically means not able to be reformed. Like mm. you're so far gone that you're... Yeah, not I mean, able like, to be you're, fixed. Yeah, you're gone. Yeah. And the relationship of his parents as quarrelsome. When Carl arrived at Red Wing, he was brought into a reception office where a male staff member named Commander George Mann examined him. He was stripped naked and he was questioned about his sexual practices. Normal, normal. And how old is he? Sorry, he's twelve years old. He's twelve years yep, old. Yep. Wow. Oh my goodness. Quote. He examined my penis and my rectum, asking me if I had ever committed fornication or sodomy or had ever had sodomy, sodomy committed on me or if I had ever masturbated, end quote. Those are some pointed questions to be asking a 12-year-old boy. Yeah, wow. think? Yeah. <laughs> like, jeez. Yeah. So... Inmates also received Christian training when they misbehaved Ugh. or failed to learn the lessons properly. Yeah, right? <laughs> Um, they were attacked by angry, vindictive attendants. There was a location on campus, on campus, quote unquote, air quote, sorry. Um, a location on this campus called the paint shop. Oh, yeah. And it received its name because this is where kids would be painted black and blue. Why? So use, use your imagination with that. <laughs> Beaten black and blue painted black and blue oh oh duh. yeah <laughs> okay that makes more sense yeah <laughs> not not quite literally painted with black and blue paint okay like... because i had a really weird image of my in my head about that this <laughs> is a bunch of smurfs on in there they had a large wooden block where the kids would be bent over and tied face downward after first being stripped naked then a large towel was soaked in salt water and spread on their backs from their shoulders to their knees. Then the man who was to do the whipping took a large strap about a quarter inch thick by four inches wide, which had a handle on top about two feet long. The strap had a lot of little round holes punched through it. So every time the whip came down on the body, the skin would get sucked up through the holes and then little blisters would form. Once these blisters burst as the whippings continued, the salt water would deliver the rest of the punishment. That's like 
awful. Isn't that sickening? We're that... probably like four minutes into this and that is a cruel, cruel, this cruel form of torture. Right oh, and it's like I feel bad. Like I know children. He, yeah, he's a, he's a young boy yeah. at the end of the day, and to have to have experienced all of this already by the age of and twelve years old, 12 and he's having old. to have these conversations, yeah. like, yeah, no. So and then it really is like it makes you think about nature versus nurture, yeah. and I think yeah. that there's like, I think both parts are pretty evident, like from his you know suspect brain damage to yeah. you know, the way that he was treated from the very beginning of his life like oh it's so so many things contributing there yeah, yeah. and not even for him but there's like 300 other boys at this school Ugh. that are you know crimes probably much less than carl's and you know they're all receiving this kind of treatment so it's pretty sad it's sad because Carl received little formal education when he lived on the farm, he was unable to read very well. So for this, he was also beaten regularly because he couldn't really complete the tasks or the lessons that he was set out to do. Quote, I may not have accomplished much in a scholarly way while there, but I learned how to become a first class liar and the beginnings of degeneracy. End quote. Soon he developed a hatred for the attendants and everything connected to religion, which he saw as the cause of his suffering. Quote, I first began to think that I was being unjustly imposed upon. Then I began to hate those who abused me. Then I began to think that I would have my revenge just as soon and as often as I could injure someone else. Anyone at all would do. End quote. Carl did not do well academically, so he was placed on full-time work duty. One day he was sent to the laundry room to get clean linens for the dining rooms. He attempted to escape, but he got caught. So they put him back to work in the officer's dining room. He began urinating and masturbating into beverages that he served to officers at the school <laughs> and was even found dumping rat poisoning poison into oh. Commander George Mann's coffee. Okay, well, the rat poison takes it just a little bit further yeah. but i mean yeah. the other part of it's kind of entertaining right so yeah so that was his that was his idea of like revenge at that time yeah. right he's a kid yeah um so the more beatings he endured the more hateful he became he was hit with wooden planks thick leather straps whips and heavy paddles but during all that time carl was planning revenge on the night of july 7th 1905 he prepared a simple device that started a fire after he left the building the fire quickly consumed the workshop at the school and it burnt to the ground while carl lay in his bed laughing at the spectacle of sweet revenge nice. <laughs> so as a side note uh, as i was doing my research Bob Dylan actually wrote a song about this school in 1963. So I wanted to share the lyrics of that, some of the lyrics anyways. So, okay. oh, the age of the inmates. I remember quite free freely, no younger than 12, no older than 17, thrown in like bandits and cast off like criminals inside the walls, the walls of Red Wing. From the dirty old mess hall, you march to the brick wall, too weary to talk and too tired to sing. Oh, it's all afternoon. You remember your hometown inside the walls, the walls of Red Wing. It's many a guard that stands around smiling, holding his club like he was a king, hoping to get you behind a wood piling inside the walls, the walls of Red Wing. Huh. Wow. Dark AF. Yeah. 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 So, so I love Bob Dylan. Yeah. I had no idea that he had a song about this. I'll oh. be I'll be listening to it afterwards. Yeah. Hashtag fun fact. Yeah, yeah, right? 
Uh, so in late 1905, he's 15 years old now, Carl was on his way out of the Minnesota State Training School. So he learned to say things that the staff wanted to hear. And when he appeared before the parole board, he convinced them that he was a changed boy and he had been reformed by the school. Carl was able to trick the parole board into believing that he was a nice, clean boy of good morals and pure as a lily. I'm going to go Carl. Good job. Mm, shocking. He's good at manipulating after the life he's been through. He's right? At 15 with... years old? Yeah, he's dealt with the masters, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> right. So uh, upon his dismissal from this school, he was given some clothes, $5, and a train ticket home. Carl had changed. Never an outgoing child, even at home. He became more withdrawn, quiet, and brooding. But his mother had too many other things to worry about. One of Carl's brothers had actually recently died in a drowning accident, and her and her his mom's health was fragile. <sighs> so about as soon as Carl could get one foot in the door back at home, he was trading his suit of clothes for overalls and a hoe and told to get back to work in the field. She had no time for a rebellious child who had a habit of getting into trouble. She may have thought that Carl would eventually work out his own problems, but even at this early age, he felt deep resentment towards his mother. He knew nothing else in his short life except suffering, beatings, and torture. His youthful mind dwelled on things of which most children knew little of. Quote, I fully decided when I left there just how I would live my life. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody I could as long as I lived, end quote. Oh, good. Like, there's no being around the bush. No. <laughs> no, you, uh, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah. Come exactly. across this man's path, you're going to mm-hmm. die. So it was January 1906, and Carl Panzram was just about to be unleashed to the world. So the idea of being sent back uh, to the field to work long, seemingly wasteful hours on this dirt farm didn't appeal to Carl. So he ended up telling his mother that he wanted to go to school to become a preacher and save souls. <laughs> he found himself in the basement of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Grand Forks, North Dakota, where religious classes were held. It wouldn't be long before his unruly behaviors would earn him whippings and beatings from the pastor there. He found a kid who had a heavy caliber Colt pistol and he stole it. And the next day, Carl stole one of his brother's vests and put the big pistol in the vest pocket. And when Carl was ordered to the front of the class for beating, he refused. And the pastor went up to his desk and attempted to pull him out of his chair by his vest. This failed and instead the buttons of the vest popped off. Pistol fell out on the floor between Panzram and the pastor. Panzram grabs the gun, firing three shots aimed at the pastor's head, each shot failing to discharge. Oh, no. Oh, no. Later that day, his family had heard about the chaos that he'd caused at school, and Carl faced yet another beating, this time at the hands of his brother Albert, who demanded to know where he hid the pistol. And now his brother Albert was um, a police officer at this time. So, yeah. boy. So he stole his brother's gun? No, he stole um, a kid's gun at the school. He stole oh, his brother's okay. vest. His but, vest. Yeah, okay. but this is why Albert demanded to know where the gun was and okay. gave him a, a beating. So, so after this incident, Carl left home for good. So Carl's about 13 to 14 years old now, and life on the road me- meant more conflict with the law, and Panzerum spent time in various juvenile institutions. He learned how to ride the freight trains and passenger trains as a air quotes hobo this is what they refer to them in that day and age so if you hear me here say hobo this is what i mean okay so he would ride these trains uh as a hobo without paying a fare 
for the first three to four months, he rode these trains to the Pacific coast and all over the West, sleeping in boxcars, barns, sheds, haystacks, really anywhere he could find. He got fed by begging and lying and preying on people's kindness, telling people that he was a poor orphan and how much he loved Jesus. He also learned hard lessons on the road. So one night riding in a boxcar, he was feeling kind of lonely. And so he wanted someone to talk to. So he walked over to another open car where he found four big burly men. Carl told them uh, about the nice warm boxcar that he just had a few cars over and he invited them down. So they agreed and they followed Panzeram to his boxcar. They began telling him what a nice boy he was and how they could make him rich. Uh oh. Yeah, I don't like where this is going. No. <laughs> Anytime somebody tells you what a nice boy you are, it's yeah. Oh. Anytime someone tells you they can make you rich. Oh. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so he was uh Carl was raped relentlessly by these men. And this would not be the only time that he was forced into a situation like this. So from these lessons, he learned to keep to himself and trust no one. So after pans ramming, I came up with that term myself. <laughs> I, I Sounds like a U word. Yeah. Love it. TM. <laughs> after pans ramming around the country for a few months, he was finally caught in a small petty larceny burglary in Butte, Montana. He was held in the county jail where there were about 50 to 100 older men. He was in there about a month or two before he was sent to yet another reform school, this time in Miles City, Montana. He was older and bigger now, so it was harder for the guards to land a good beat on him but there was one officer by the name of Bouchard an ex-prize fighter from Boston who made it his special duty to make life miserable for Panzram. so one day Carl grabbed a two-foot hard oak board came up behind him and whacked him on the top of his head he the attempt was to kill him but it didn't kill him it did make him pretty sick and apparently that was enough incentive for him to leave Carl alone um, this school was just as religious as the last one and after getting caught masturbating one one day he was sentenced to have his foreskin removed oh no. but like and probably without anything too mm -hmm. oh yeah and yeah. everything just clenched mm, yeah <laughs> he did end up making one friend at the reform school and his name was jimmy benson so benson was clever and mischievous and he was young he was around pans around age um so together they formulated a plan to break out of the school so the plan was Benson would leave first leaving the guards looking for him at which point Panzram would escape so Carl ended up getting 40 miles away after three nights on the run arriving in Terry Montana the smell of food drew Panzram around the corner where he saw someone rattling a can dressed in a nice blue suit with a Stetson hat on one side of him of this guy he had a sack full of clothes and food and on the other side he had a pistol so with the unsuspecting victims back facing Carl, Carl drew up his tire iron, preparing to bounce it off the guy's head. But the unsuspecting guy heard Carl and spun around with his pistol in hand and pointed it at Panzram. Carl was staring at his buddy, Jimmy Benson. <laughs> what? Yes. Oh, actually? So he was, he was about to deadass just fucking kill his yeah. this guy yeah and it's jimmy benson yeah so they had a good laugh and so his one and only friend oh you tried to kill me let's have a laugh about it <laughs> so they had a good laugh and celebrated their escape and together they set out east stealing from church donation boxes traveling on train cars robbing people blind you know 
Just living the life. Good old days. Oh, exactly. So life on the rails was unpredictable, and they later parted ways. So Panzram was going to head west now. To be a cowboy, remember? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Should have been a cowboy. (laughs) In December 1907, Carl is 16 years old now. He arrives in the city of Helena, Montana. There's very little law enforcement here, and people still wore pistols on their belts by the canadian fur traders and river fishermen who were pretty tough it was not a place for teenagers one night at a local tavern panzeram was drinking alone at the bar and heard a speech given by a local army recruiter later that same night he lied about his age and enlisted in the u.s army <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah so they didn't the u.s army was so desperate for people to enlist that they didn't fact check nothing yeah right? i guess so so they're like yeah cool seems legit yeah. so he knew this might be his only hope in surviving the winter that's why he did it so because he'd be supplied the bare essentials from the military so panzerm left for boot camp which at that time was held in fort william henry harrison which is a distant post in western montana he was assigned as a private to accompany a in the sixth infantry on his first day in uniform panzerm was brought up on charges of insubordination for refusing a certain work detail over the next month he was jailed several times for various petty offenses he was constantly drunk and impossible to control and he's just unable to conform to military discipline sounds like a treat oh, carl <laughs> let's give this guy a gun too right? yeah <laughs> So in April of 1908, he broke into the quartermaster's building and stole a quantity of clothes worth about $88. As he attempted to go AWOL with the stolen items, he was arrested by the military police and thrown into the stockade. He received a general court-martial on April 20th, 1908, before a military tribunal of nine junior and senior officers who had no tolerance for criminal activity for men in uniform. Panzeram pled guilty to three counts of larceny. According to court transcript, the what the fuck was that? (laughs) According to court transcripts, he was sentenced quote to be dishonorably discharged from the service of the United States, forfeiting all pay and allowances due to him, and to be confined at hard labor at such a place as reviewing authority may direct for three years. End quote. Federal prisoners at that time typically were sent to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Future President William Howard Taft, who at the time was Secretary of War, approved the prison sentence. So he was like, yep, let's get them over there. It would not be the last time that their paths crossed. Oh, man. Bum, bum, bum. Remember that name, William Howard Taft. So Panzeram was chained up and taken to the local train station with a number of other military prisoners. They were shackled to the inside of a cattle car by armed guards, given no food, no water. It was about a thousand mile trip, too. The train rolled out of the Helena Depot and crawled south into Wyoming, across Nebraska, into eastern Kansas, where the towering walls of Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary rose up from muddy banks of the Missouri River, like giant tombstones. So this is like the time oh, when prisons were like basically modeled after like castles. Yeah. yeah. So they're like brooding. They they yeah. look like brooding. I like when Ghost Hunters does. Uh, I know. Like creepy. Ghost Hunters. Like, yeah. 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 That's such a good one. Um. Funny story. I actually got this episode from or this. Um case 
from an episode of Ghost Adventures. Oh, really? <laughs> right. I, I think I just watched that episode. So, so I'll go into that. I go. I touch on it a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know if it's in part one or part two, but. In May 1908, his hands shackled and leg iron, irons firmly attached, Panzeran entered into the gloomy confines of Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary for the first time. So this is the thing that's messed up. He's 16 years old and prison authorities don't know how old he is. Like he is in here with hardened criminals at the tender age of 16. Wow. So um, he was treated like any other man too, because they didn't know how old he was. So he lied about his age. Exactly. Right. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, Carl. Damn it, Carl. Damn it, Damn Carl. So prisoners had to stand in formation every morning, regardless of weather. Guards invoked a regimen of strict discipline and mandatory obedience. Just like many other institutions of its day, a strict code of silence was enforced, and if an inmate was caught speaking out of turn, he was whipped and thrown into solitary. So this code of silence was born in Auburn Prison in the state of New York during the 19th century, and it was maintained uh, by a legion of technology reform reformers for decades um, as a powerful tool of control used by the nation's prisons during that era. So basically any infraction was punished without delay. Didn't matter. Speak out of turn. You do anything. Basically punishment and beatings and that sort of thing was the only way. the wrong way. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It was the only way they saw fit to treat a prisoner. Otherwise they wouldn't reform you know yeah very old school way of thinking very yeah very archaic so panzerum suffered numerous beatings and soon became desperate to break out instead he decided to burn down one of the prison's workshops causing more than a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage in that time i didn't even do the friggin conversion inflation. to what it would be yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, though he was never charged with this crime, Panzram was constantly in trouble for breaking a multitude of other prison rules. So, guards thought nothing of torturing prisoners, again, since, it's like I said, it's the only way that they could think to keep control. Um, a convict could not remain unpunished for breaking the rules because to do so would encourage more violations and ultimately anarchy. And they had to basically instill fear into the prisoners. And every guard knew that if a revolt occurred, they had pretty little chance of getting out alive because these prisoners would fuck shit up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Panzerim was chained to a 50 pound metal ball. He had to carry the weight no matter where he went, even if he slept at night. Even when he slept at night, if he slept at night, I'm picturing like one of those, like, <laughs> yeah, a ball and chain, ball right? And chain. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he was assigned to break rocks in a quarry, which he did for 10 hours a day with his ball and chain, seven days a week. Oh my God. <laughs> but he grew strong and muscular all the while, planning for the time that he would get out. And day by day, he grew bitter and angry. He was consumed by vengeance and he was just waiting for the day when he could roam free again. Oh my God. Well, even more so than he already was after being in that school so it's just like piling on top of each other exactly i i I envision it like um a thermometer like yeah mercury just boiling and boiling and boiling right quote i was discharged from that prison in 1910 i was a pretty rotten egg before i went in there but when i left there all the good that may have been in me had been kicked and beaten out of me all that i had in my mind at that time was a strong determination to raise plenty of hell with anybody and everybody in every way I could and every time I could and every place I could. I was a spirit of meanness personified. End quote. 
chills like the oh, spirit man. of meanness personified yeah. Yikes. Well, and he's just so nonchalant it's yeah, just I'm, you know this is who i am yep and i'm angry deal with yep. it yeah exactly wow it's crazy <clears throat> so he was released in august that year he walked outside into the fresh air convinced he would never see leavenworth and its hated walls again but he was wrong because 20 years later He'd see himself back there. Of course. Of course. And we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) So upon his release from Leavenworth in 1910, again, he's given five bucks, a change of clothes, and a ticket to Denver, Colorado. I guess this was just, you know, how they did things back then. They gave you some clothes and some money and a ticket. Bye. (laughs) See you later. Get the hell out of here. So though he was only 20 years old, he had already spent a substantial portion of his young life in reform schools and prisons. Yeah. Um, At Leavenworth, any semblance of hope that he may have had to grow into a mature, productive adult citizen was effectively destroyed. Safe to say Mm -hmm. years of abuse and physical torture had taken their toll. There was no family that cared about him. He had no home and no prospects for the future. What he was, though, was six feet tall and 190 pounds, as strong as two or three average men of concentrated, hell-fired meanness. Oh, my God. It's like they created a monster. Yeah, because nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want Shady. I'm chopped liver. Denver, he took a job in a mule skinner's camp. So I'm going to explain what this is because it sounds. I was like, excuse me. (laughs) So a mule skinner is a mule driver. Like drives a mule, right? Mm -hmm. Donkey a mule. Um, They're often found in mining or logging camps, and these people drove mules on wagons that would carry materials from one job site to the next. The term skinner refers to someone who can outsmart or tame a mule. Okay. So mule skinner. So pretty soon, though, after only a few weeks, he managed to piss everyone off with his thievery and sodomy (laughs) and was fired and they drove him out of there at gunpoint. It's important to note as well that somewhere around this time, he finally decided to have sex with a woman. Oh. And he caught gonorrhea. Oh, right. <laughs> I knew that. Teach him. So, so he would never touch a woman again. So of he always course. had like um this of uh, almost aversion to women. And I don't know if it's like something his mother instilled in him or whatever. But well, the resentment towards his mom too right. has a lot to play. But he that. also he always like he uh portrayed or he saw them as like dirty. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, after, after that experience, getting gonorrhea, I can see But even why, before but... that, he, he yeah, I guess so. Probably, yeah. yeah, but yeah, and then he gets gonorrhea, and he's like, yeah, nail in the coffin on that yeah. one. So, <laughs> I mean, thankfully for the women of the world at this time, yeah, yeah. You know, right? yeah. silver linings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was time for Carl to find a new job. After leaving Denver, he wound up in Hitchinson, Kansas, where the State Fair of Kansas was being held at the time. There, he joined up as a writer for Colonel Dickey's Circle D Wild West show. Yeah, so like a carny, basically. That sounds fun. Right? He only lasted about a week there, though. (laughs) Before he was fired. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Carl. (laughs) Are we surprised? No. No. So after pissing everyone off there, he fled to Sedalia, Missouri, where they were holding their state fair as well. So he waited a day or so for them to get there. So Carl got there first and then waited for them to show up for their state fair. And Carl ended up setting fire to their horse tent and their cook tent. Oh, no. Yeah. Off he went again for his next job as a guard for the strikers on the railway. 
So they figured Panzeram, being big and tough, would scare the Union strikers. And he was even given the green light to give them beatings. So Carl was like, yes. This right is, up my alley. This is all over my resume right now. <laughs> yeah. But he got bored of that pretty quick and soon moved on to just literally beating anyone, including other guards. So payday came and Carl decided a night on the town was in order. There he would find a group of Union workers that wanted to find out just how tough Panzeram really was. So they beat the shit out of him. After this incident in the winter of 1910, Carl's boss bought him a ticket to East St. Louis, but Carl had other plans. Instead, he used that ticket. He went to Chicago, then to Jacksonville, Texas, where he met, quote, one of the most beautiful, curly-haired, blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked, fat boys that I have ever seen in my life, and I have seen some nice boys, end quote. Oh. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Like, so he's just, like, giving up on women altogether. Oh, yeah. He's, okay. Like, he's just onto the boys. Oh, like the oh boys. my gosh. So in Jacksonville, they were both arrested. Him and this beautiful blue-eyed boy. I don't want to <laughs> repeat it. Um, Carl's sentence, uh, Carl sentence called for 40 days. He finished his 40 days, and then when he asked to leave, he was beaten and given 20 more days. <laughs> when he was finally released, he walked to Pal he walked to Palestine, Texas, where he caught the train into Houston, Texas. But when he got there, the town was on fire. Like it was just burning. Okay. Yeah. And so the train couldn't get in. So he hopped off the train and he listened to the beautiful sounds of people crying and begging for help. And he stole from those same people. Oh like the friggin' asshole he is. Like I'm just picturing this guy. He's on a train entire town burning behind him everyone's screaming and he's just like doo, 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 doo. i'm gonna yeah, take this right? and i'm gonna take this yeah <laughs> like it's like, great it was a big old grin on his face yeah yeah <laughs> i know that's so crazy i know i picture the same thing so from there he crashed into juarez mexico where he had planned to join the mexican army during the mexican revolution unfortunately for panzram and Fortunately for the rest of humanity, I'm sure. Federals wouldn't accept him. So he met a couple people on his journey in Mexico, but I'll save you the gory details on all that because at this point, I think we can venture a guess on how he would have treated them. Mm -hmm. um, so with one friend he did make along the way, though, he made his way to, they made their way to Del Rio, Texas for a short stint. And that's where he and that, this friend split up. Pandram crossed the border again at Del Rio to Agua Prieta, I hope I said that right, Mexico, where he was successful in enlisting in the Foreign Legion of the Constitutionalist Army of Northern Mexico. So I know this is very confusing because he's going into Mexico, he's coming out of Mexico, he's going back into Mexico. Yeah. Okay. So we're in Mexico right now. Once he found out that all the churches there were already robbed, he realized that he couldn't do much business in his line there, so he deserted. He stole his horse, among other things. No surprise there. Okay. He rode until he hit the border. He hopped on the South Pacific line from Yuma, Arizona, and headed west, wreaking his usual havoc along the way. Quote, I burned down old barns, sheds, fences, snow sheds, or anything I could. And when I couldn't burn anything else, I would set fire to the grass on the prairies or the woods, anything and everything. End quote. He's just wild. Yeah. Like, arsonist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is, like, there's really no 
appropriate word. There's no one word that it's describes. Hard her. to believe that like he's a real person and not like a made up fictional character. I know. I feel like this is what every bad guy's ever been like based on. Yeah. Kind of like he embodies all of the characteristics yeah. of a typical bad guy. Yeah. And what blows my mind. He's maybe 20 right now. Oh, yeah. Like, you are you listen to the story and you're like, oh, yeah, this crazy old man. But he's not. He's, he's a, a freaking kid. That's crazy. Yeah. Because I do. I picture him kind of as, like, an older man in my yeah. head every yeah, now and then. Too. And then it's like, he's not. He's, I'm older than him. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So when he burglarized homes, he would look for guns first. And he would shoot at farmers' houses, windows, cows in the field. It didn't matter. He was just there to raise hell and stir up chaos wherever he went. He cut a path of destruction across the country in a methodical, relentless way that kept police hot on his trail, but always one step behind. And when he would get caught, he lied and cheated his way out of every situation using the woe is me, I'm an injured, hardworking, Jesus-loving boy. And it worked. And it would and work. And it would work. Yeah. He raped without mercy, rarely passing up an opportunity to take on a new victim. During the summer of 1911, he used the name Jefferson Davis. And this is another thing. Um, he uses a whole bunch of different aliases. Right. Again, very easy just to falsify your identity back then. Oh, right? yeah, for Even, sure. Yeah. You wanted to disappear or become somebody else. Yeah. Took nothing. Exactly. So he's using the name Jefferson Davis right now. And he drifted from town to town, robbing people and escaping by the rails whenever he could. In Fresno, California, he was arrested for stealing a bicycle. He was sent to the county jail for six months, but he escaped only after 30 days. He jumped on a freight train heading northwest and brought along some stolen guns that he had previously buried outside of town before he got arrested. While he was in a boxcar with two other men, he saw another opportunity for rape. But a railroad cop found his way into the boxcar and tried to extort money from the men or he would throw them off the train. Panzram had other ideas. Uh-oh. Panzram robbed the cop of his watch and whatever money he had. Then, while the other two men watched, he raped the officer at gunpoint. He then forced the other two men to do the same. Oh, God. Jeez. So Panzram threw all the men off the train after this and continued his trip to Oregon, which or where he became one of many seasonal loggers who roamed the countryside looking for work. And when work couldn't be found, he survived by any means necessary. This guy's had like every job under the sun. Right. <laughs> Except yeah. for cowboy. He hasn't right. been a cowboy yet. Or a pirate. Or a pirate. So by the year 1913, he's 23 years old. Tempered by many years of drinking, beatings, imprisonment, and just living on the road like a friggin' animal, he evolved into a hardened criminal, obviously. He was also physically big, square-shouldered, and muscular. As he continued his journey through the Northwest, he was arrested in several states under the name Jack Allen. Under that name, he was pinched for much of the same debauchery as always at the Dallies, Oregon. The Dallies was a tough river port in the Columbia River where pirates, gamblers, loggers, and outlaws frequently gathered. After he broke out of jail with a posse of furious deputies after him, Panzeram fled Oregon and crossed the eastern state line into Idaho. Guys all over the place. Yeah. 
Within the week, he was arrested again for uh-huh. stealing and thrown into the county jail at Harrison, Idaho. On this occasion, he used the alias Jeff Davis. During the first night in custody, he set a massive fire to one of the buildings and several of the inmates escaped, including Pansram. Of course. He quickly fled north through the grove of ancient cedars across the Bitterroot Mountains and into western Montana. In the small town of Chinook, Montana, Pansram got locked up as Jefferson Davis for burglary and received one year a one-year sentence at the Montana State Prison at Deer Lodge. It's located 30 miles north of Butte amid the Rockies. The prison... Sorry, oh, I have a question. Yeah. So when he's being arrested, he's being arrested under these other aliases. Mm-hmm. Do they at any point find out that it's an alias and that he's not who... They will. They will? Eventually. Eventually? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, won't okay. Be, you won't be here for that part, though. Damn it! Uh. <laughs> so in the small town of Chinook, Montana, Pandrum gets locked up as Jefferson Davis for burglary, and he received a one-year sentence at the Montana State Prison at Deer Lodge. Located 30 miles north of Butte amid the Rockies, um, the prison that was built in 1895 when the American prison construction, again, was modeled after European castles. This prison was huge and towering. According to the prison admissions log, Panzeram was received at Deer Lodge on April 27, 1913. And there was pretty little for convicts to actually do in this prison. Like other prisons you know, you'd have chores, you'd have work, you'd have whatever to do. Um, not that much to do at this prison except for kill time. So we don't so, want pans around killing time. I was just going to say, that's Getting exactly what he man. needs. Hey, yeah, time exactly. to sit and th- think and be angry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so while he's at Deer Lodge, he ran into his old friend, Jimmy Benson. Oh, it's Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> he was doing a 10 year stretch for robbery and together they planned an escape. But at the last minute, Benson was transferred and couldn't participate. Oh, right? bummer. On November 13th, 1913, Pandram escaped from Deer Lodge on his own and fled toward Butte. Barely a week later, in a town called Three Forks, he was arrested for burglary under the name Jeff Rhodes. Oh, oh my goodness. He was given another year for the escape and returned to the state prison. So, again, because there's not much to do at this prison, like, life is pretty slow and monotonous. It was understaffed. It was mismanaged. Uh, There's little assigned labor for inmates. And they spent most of their days in cells, lying on their bunks, wandering outside in the prison yard. Um, And because of Carl's size and reputation, he was able to intimidate the other prisoners into submission. Oh, so So he could just kind of run the place, essentially. Yeah, and I say submission and the fact that you know how he liked to get his jollies off so you know that he did right you know how he did so Panzeram served out his full sentence at Deer Lodge and on March 30th 1915 he was released and of course wherever he went Panzeram stole food clothes money and guns so again not much different coming out of this prison either so for months during the year of 1915, he traveled up and down the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest through Washington, Idaho, Nebraska, South Dakota. He was a veteran of the rails by this point. And on the night of June 1st, 1915, he broke into a house in the town of Astoria, Oregon. He lifted uh, some clothes and other articles that weren't worth more than 20 bucks, but he was later arrested, <laughs> surprise, when he tried to sell a stolen watch. He was indicted for larceny in a dwelling, and later, after a promise by the local DA to go easy on him, he pled guilty. So he took a plea deal, right? He was sentenced as Jefferson Baldwin to seven years at the Oregon State Prison 
at the Oregon State Penitentiary, sorry, in Salem. So he pled guilty and they did not hold up their end of the bargain. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Whoops. Forgot. On June 24th, 1915, he arrived at the prison. In the admission record, he uh, listed his place of birth as Alabama and his occupation as thief. Nice. <laughs> Guards immediately took notice of the prisoner's surly, uncooperative attitude. Panzeran plugged up all the locks in the cells so no one could get in or out. <laughs> he tore loose all the radiators and steam pipes, smashed all the electrical wiring, took the cook stove, all the dishes, the food, the blankets, the clothing, literally anything and everything that was loose or could be torn loose. He took it and he piled it up and he set fire to it. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so the guards finally bro broke through the door and they put the fire out. The state prison was not concerned with uncooperative inmates and Salem prison was notorious in the Northwest for punishing its prisoners by abuse and torture. So the warden at that time was tough, crude. Um, he was former sheriff. He was a former sheriff named Harry Minto who believed wholeheartedly in keeping the inmates in line by force. So whipping, hosing, beating, starvation, and isolation all of that was on the table basically so minto endorsed the auburn system which we talked about earlier which by like prisoners would be punished even if they uttered one word out of line so they were frequently shackled to walls and hung from rafters for hours sometimes days at a time inmates were whipped with the it's called the cat on nine tails cat o nine tails I have heard of that. Mysteries yeah. at the Museum, okay. I think, did a story Perfect. on. So for our listeners, basically, it's a whip, but there's a handle with nine whips coming out of it. Yeah. And the prisoners would be flogged with that. Yikes. So he got into trouble almost immediately for rural viol violations, and punishment became routine. So Panzram's record of discipline shows that on January 1st, 1916, he was hung for 10 hours a day for two days. Uh, for raising a disturbance in a cell and cursing at an officer. On February 27th, he was hoisted up 12 hours at the door for going up on another tier, tier and having a dangerous weapon, um, a billy or a sap, basically just like a small concealable weapon. Yeah. He was later found to be in possession of a blackjack, same sort of idea, and thrown into the dungeons, air quotes, for three weeks with only bread and water. Jeez. Quote, they stripped us naked and chained us up to a door, and then they turned the fire hose on us until we were black and blue and half blind. End quote. So that's what that's what they do when they chain them on the door. They just fire hose them. Oh I can't even know. imagine that as a punishment. Right. But still, Panzerm continued his combative behavior. He started several fires and burned down three buildings at various times. He spent 61 days in solitary where he had to basically grope around in the dark and eat cockroaches for food. Oh, yeah. Oh crunchy. Yeah. Crunchy. <laughs> Why is it spicy? <laughs> In early 1917, Panzerm helped another inmate named Otto Hooker escape from the prison. Hooker asked for a job on the prison farm and he was granted his request. Even though he was under the eyes of the guards, Hooker took off and made his escape. Warden Minto gave chase after him with other guards following them. So they made it quite a distance into a neighboring town where Minto finally got Hooker cornered and began beating the snot out of him. Hooker grabbed Minto's gun and shot him in the head, killing him. 
He continued running, but the guards caught up to him uh, sooner than he could escape. And basically they offered him the same fate. So they killed him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the prison got a new warden named John Minto. So, yep. The late Harry Minto's brother. Oh. Oh. <laughs> wasn't much nicer either. <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah. So under the new warden Minto, Panzram tried to escape numerous times, but was caught and punished, obviously. Uh, he was up to his regular no good deeds. He once stole a few dozen bottles of lemon extract from the storeroom, took it out to a group of prisoners in the yard, and got them all drunk and ready to raise some hell for the guards. Well, that was nice of him, I guess. Right? <laughs> so, but the... Panzerum didn't drink it. He stayed sober so that he could just watch his masterpiece unfold, basically. Oh and sit back and just like... This guy's a, a treat. He's right? something else. Yeah. He's a true villain. So the harsh punishments continued for the prisoners, including Carl, like being locked in a cooler for months at a time, chained up to doors with fire hoses shot at them. You know. They're huge. The huge. <laughs> so anyways, an investigation took place looking into how the prison was run and all these punishments and everything. And the warden, Warden Minto and Deputy Warden and nine other guards all got fired. Oh. So a new warden came in and his name was Spud Murphy. <laughs> Literally the coolest name I've ever heard in my I life. I love that name. If I have another son, his name's Spud. Spud. Done. Spud. Spud, yeah. Spud Murphy. Spud this Murphy. Is, uh, this is on record. So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So he was much different. Murphy almost befriended Panzram and even told him, he told Carl that if Carl promised not to escape, he would let, he would open the gates and let him outside of the prison to go anywhere he wanted and just like gallivant around for a day. Um, oh, sounds like right? a great idea. As long as he was back by dinner time. Oh my God. So Panzeram had no intention of making that promise and even told the warden he absolutely planned to escape. Either way, the warden opened the gates and off Panzeram went. What? <laughs> why, why escape when he can walk out know, the front right? door? <laughs> so look at this. He walked around for a bit to see if there were any guards watching him first and he couldn't find any. The warden had literally put his full trust into Carl. And Carl was so dumbfounded by this that all he could do was sit there and wonder why. Like, he did <laughs> nothing the entire time he was out. And then, like a good boy, he went back to the prison at dinner time. He's like, why? He's probably thinking, why the hell am I going back? Right. <laughs> did nothing. So Murphy would give Carl odd jobs inside the prison. And oddly enough, Carl worked well for Murphy where he hadn't for any other warden that preceded Murphy. So he get Carl involved in all sorts of activities. He even pushed him to try sports or band, but Carl obviously like he didn't have the education um, growing up or anything like that. Didn't really have those opportunities growing up. So he didn't really know much about that stuff. So he's like, I don't feel like I'd be any good at either of those things. So Murphy had him carry the flag at the front of the band. He's like, well, are you too dumb to carry a flag? And Carl's like, well, guess not. <laughs> Just don't set it on fire. Right? <laughs> Is it a red flag? Like, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Is it a burning red flag? I think so. I think Carl's carrying a lot of those. Um, well, so, he's definitely carrying something burning a while right, ago. <laughs> yeah. So he actually did a really good job of carrying this flag. He did a really good job. 
Good. good. That's good. So the way Spud Murphy ran the prison was so different from the wardens before him. The whole country had their eye on his little social experiment. So he's actually treating prisoners like humans with the hope of reform instead of beating reform into them. Well, look at, look at the evidence that it works, though, yep. because Panzeram literally got to walk out the front door. Right. Yeah. And he sat there and was like, did this actually just happen? Yeah, I better go to back. To the point where he actually goes back. Yeah. And so it clearly works. And I think actually, like, at that time, too, because he went back, I think um, I think he ends up ask, like requesting to speak to a prison psychiatrist or whatever and being like, is there something wrong with me? Like, why didn't I leave? Is there something mentally wrong with me then? And they're like, no, you got a clean bill of health. You're good. Oh. Yeah. Crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> so on September 18th, 1917, he finally succeeded to escape from the prison. He broke into a house in the town of Tangent, stealing clothes, food, money, and a loaded 38 caliber handgun. A few days later, a local cop recognized Panzeram from a wanted poster and tried to arrest him. But the last thing that Carl wanted was to face Spud Murphy, the one person who ever believed in him, the one person he actually felt regret for disappointing. Which is crazy that he felt regret. Yeah. yeah. So Panzeram pulled out his gun and opened fire on the sheriff's deputy. But he ran out of ammunition and was captured. Oh, no. On the way to jail, Panzeram tried to grab the cop's gun and a fierce struggle took place inside the police car. The rear windows were kicked out and several shots were fired through the roof as the men battled for the officer's handgun. Oh, my gosh. Panzeram was bleating bleaten beaten bloody and unconscious <laughs> he was brought back to salem and dumped into solitary but not for long so incredibly on may 12 1918 panzer escaped from the oregon prison again he sawed through the window bars using a hacksaw blade and jumped down off the prison walls as frantic guards <laughs> fired hundreds of rounds at him he made it into the woods and just disappeared and not one bullet hit him? I know. It's wild. Like what, what kind of horseshoe does this I guy know. have shoved right? on his ass? Yeah. Right? He later hopped a freight train heading east and left the Pacific Northwest forever. He changed his name to John O'Leary. He shaved his mustache. He was still burglarizing and burning churches along the way, but he was headed for the East Coast. We're going to do it different. Here we go. <laughs> So in the summer of 1920, he's 29 years old, and he spent a great deal of his time uh, in the city of New Haven, Connecticut. He preferred places with activity and lots of people because more people meant more targets, more money, and more victims. And it also meant that the cops were too busy, hopefully, to bother with the likes of Panzerum. So he went out at night, cruising the city streets, looking for an easy mark. Um, if he didn't mug an unsuspecting drunk or rape a young boy, he would look for a house to burglarize. In August, he found a house located at 113 Whitney Avenue that looked, air quotes, fat and ready for the taking. It was an old three-story colonial, pretty fancy looking. She was like, hmm, you know, nice neighborhood. Inside, Carl found a large amount of jewelry, bonds, and a 45 caliber automatic handgun. Now, when he looked at the name of the bonds, the name read William H. Taft. The same man who had sentenced him to three years at Leavenworth in 1907. At that time, Taft had been Secretary of War when he sentenced him. Now at 1920, he's the, 
former president of the United States and the current professor of law at Yale University in New Haven. And Panzerama is currently robbing his house. Yes. So after stealing everything he could carry, Panzerama escaped through the same window and hit the streets carrying a large bag of loot. He got about $3,000 in cash, which he used to buy a yacht called the Akista in the lower east side of Manhattan. He registered the boat under the name John O'Leary, the alias that he used when he was living in the New York area. So he basically had an alias for each area yeah. that he was in, right? He sailed the boat up the East River, eastward through the Long Island Sound, past the south shore of the Bronx, the city of New Rochelle, and onto the rocky coast of Connecticut. Along the way, he broke into dozens of boats uh, on their moorings, and moorings are basically where they're tied up. He stole booze, guns, supplies, anything he could get his hands on. He finally became a pirate. I was just yeah. thinking that. He's really good at this whole pirate. <coughs> Pardon me, this whole pirate business. Yeah. So he eventually moored the Akista at the New Haven Yacht Club, where he settled in for a time, enjoying the hot weather, drinking prohibition booze, and thinking about his next victims. Now we're just about to end part one here, but I want to remind you that after everything we've gone through. He hasn't killed anybody yet. I was just no. thinking that. I was like, he hasn't. He's tried. Actually, yeah, he's tried. <laughs> tried. He's tried. He's yeah. done really inappropriate, despicable things, but no one's died. Yeah. When he visited Manhattan's Lower East Side, Panzram noticed hordes of visiting sailors on shore leave their, from their ships docked along the East River. He realized that many of them were looking for work on the outgoing freighters or local boats because this was an era of enormous shipping activity and the age of uh, ocean liner when international travel was mostly accomplished by sea. So lots of sailors. So he began to look for sailors to hire. Anyone who was about his size who appeared to have money, he would promise the sailors easy work and big pay. Basically, he'd make any promise he could to get them onto his yacht. So once on the yacht, Panzram would wine and dine them. He'd get them drunk. And when the sailors went to bed, he would take the gun that he stole from Taft and blow their brains out. He stole this gun from Taft with the intention of every murder, subsequent murder from here on out is attached to this gun to president taft right okay this is uh, now here we are the first time that he's actually murdering people and he's taking out like a few at a time yeah that's kind of odd that the very first time that he would take a life it's a group like it's because he's not like he's not i don't think he's really methodical in how he does it he's just like He's just a fucking train wreck. Like, yeah. well, and why, why all of a sudden, like, why was it that moment or those people right. that all of a sudden now he's killing? Yeah. Hasn't he killed before? What made, I'd be well, interested. Again, like, like you said before, it's like, he's tried. Yes. Yeah. He just wasn't successful. Successful. Right? Yeah. yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. Again, this is his first time actually murdering someone in his short yet chaotic life. And it wouldn't be the last. He would then take a rope, tie a large rock to one end and the dead sailor to the other end, put them in his rowboat, head out to the main channel about a mile over and dump them overboard. He did this for about three weeks, but people at City Island started to look at him fighting. Like, why aren't these sailors coming back? I wanted to just touch on really quickly before we end this episode. Execution rocks light. 
is a lighthouse. And this was uh, the episode of Ghost Adventures that put me to okay. this case. This lighthouse is located in the middle of Long Island Sound on the border between New Rochelle and Sands Point, New York. And the island on which the lighthouse sits is claimed to derive its name from colonial New York when slave-owning settlers of Sands Point murdered enslaved people by chaining them to the rocks during low tide and leaving them as high tide came in. So they're literally chained up there in the water, watching the tide come in, just waiting to drown. That is oh terrifying. Awful. It's terrifying. Awful. Yeah. Um, many ships also ran aground here and shipwrecked just because of the jagged rocks of the shore of that little island. So that's why the lighthouse was built there in the first place. But Panzram claimed to have dumped many bodies just off the shores of this lighthouse. And that episode of Ghost Adventures, um, they do try to make contact with Carl Panzram. Oh, cool. Yes. <laughs> cool. I need to see that episode. Yeah, I so, think I'm going to have to go look that up. So that is part one. That's where we're going to end it. I can't even believe that all this information you've given me and the audience tonight is just the scratching of the surface of what made him who he is. I Not know. even his actual like murderous tendencies and all that kind of stuff. A great story. Yeah. I love it. And everything that he's been through so yeah. far, like, I can't believe that he's still younger than us. Mm -hmm. I know. At this point where we've stopped, yeah. he's still younger than we are now. Yeah. It's wild. It's, it's wild, wild to think about. Yeah. Oh, my God. He does. He sounds like a real life, like, movie villain. And it's funny, like, the, my whole time, like, reading through this case and, like, how much he travels from one place to the next all i ever envision is like when you know like on a movie or something when they're traveling and there's a map and it's just <laughs> like that red dot yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all i can see is just like yeah. <laughs> oh, and then i'm picturing him with like his little like hobo stick, stick his little hobo <laughs> stick with his polka dot like bandana holding everything together all his stolen clothes across the map yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah but i do uh, it's honestly he's got all the characteristics of pretty well any bad guy villain that you could ever mm -hmm. think of and he's all one man he was failed so hard as yeah. a child though like, yeah he really was well he, it brings up that conversation of nurture versus nature, nature, yeah. versus nature right yeah. so yeah this has been christy with part one of carl panzram and um Whew. Yeah, we're gonna need a palate cleanser after that. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot to unpack. It's a lot to digest. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yes. For sharing that. Yes. And hold, hold on for at part two. Yeah. Hold on to your butts. Hold oh, on to two. your butts. Yeah. I won't be here, but I am very excited to listen to you guys do the episode. I'm gonna be in Mexico, everybody. So if you want to find me, I'll be on a beach somewhere. Sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> but I really look forward to listening to the second part of this. Oh, story. I'll find you. Just <laughs> as always you guys can find us on our socials. We are on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. We are on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. We are on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew, and you can also email us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll chat with you guys next, next time. time. Bye. Bye. Bye.